classics, jams, masterclasses, and big bands and combos from all over the world. And in the next hour, you and I, Janet and David, are joined by Maggie Paley and David Finkel to discuss souvenirs, collectibles, and junk. Sunday night at 11 on WBAI, the new two-hour Cat Radio Cafe. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Cat Radio Cafe! Hey, do cats collect souvenirs? Yes! Look under the sofa. You're listening to WBAI New York. It's now 5 o'clock and time for Driving Forces with Celeste Katz and Jeff Simmons. Good afternoon and welcome to Driving Forces. This is a weekly show every Thursday night about politics and policy and an opportunity for you to tell us what is on your mind. I'm joined today by my co-host, Celeste Katz. Good afternoon, Celeste. Good afternoon, Jeff Simmons. A pleasure to be on the air with you once again. Yeah, we're not going to talk about the weather. Everyone else is talking about the weather. It's nice, warm, and cozy in uh, here in the studios yes, today. Yes, very much. Well, it's always, it's always cozy with you. <laughs> this week, we are continuing our ongoing coverage of the public advocates race. If you are in uh, a, a dedicated listener of WBAI, I'm sure you're also listening to Max and Murphy on Wednesday nights. They're focusing as well because uh, we had 23 candidates and we were dividing them all up. But this week there is some news about the uh, state of this race. Uh, yeah. th- yep. No, absolutely. We have uh, winnowed down the number of qualified candidates uh, who will be appearing in the first debate of the, uh, the public advocate contest. And we have how many? We have... We're now down to... 17 from the 23 that are going to be on the ballot. And of the 17, uh, we're gonna, one of our guests is going to talk with us today about how many of them uh, have been eligible to receive matching funds. Right, right, through the Campaign Finance Board. And uh, that's, a, that's a whole interesting story in and of itself in terms of uh, how, uh, you know, how money plays into politics. Always down to talk about that, absolutely. So, and for those of you who are not as familiar with this race, uh, the uh, uh, it is nonpartisan. So you're not saying, you know, you're not voting for a Democrat. By the way, the date is February 26th for this special election. That's right. Uh, but it is nonpartisan. So you're not voting on a Democratic line or a Republican line. And everyone has come up with their own uh, party affiliation. Uh, yeah, no, and absolutely. People have come up with, uh, they've invented all sorts of interesting uh, party, uh, party names for themselves, ballot lines. And there's questions about ballot position. We have, uh, we've already interviewed a number of the, uh, of the candidates. Uh, uh, recently, along with, uh, as Jeff said earlier, uh, Max and Murphy, uh, who appear on uh, Wednesdays. And we've talked to, let's see, I think last week we had Jumani Williams, if I am correct. We had Mike Zambluskis. We've had uh, quite a few of the candidates. And uh, today, hopefully, we are going to have uh, at least one more. And then we're also going to have a sort of a, a bit of a history lesson, which I think is going to be uh, kind of enjoyable. Somebody that I uh, covered for uh, quite a while uh, when I worked uh, back at the Daily News for, wow, 15 and a half years. Um, Jeff also, of course, is a, a Daily News veteran, and you may have read his work in the past also in the New York Post and seen him on New York One, but I think this is somebody that will be very, very familiar to our uh, to our listeners. Uh, 
uh, here at WBAI. And uh, I'll be interested to hear what people and, think. And one of the more interesting things is when they uh, announced who was going to be on the ballot, yeah. one of the names on the ballot has already tried to get her name off the ballot because she was dropping right. out of the race. And right. and to be perfectly blunt, that was the candidate, uh, the Assemblywoman uh, Latrice Walker, who wasn't getting back to us as we tried to reach uh, out for the last two yeah. weeks to invite her on the show. And I think that's, I'm trying to, gosh, I'm trying to remember, I mean, it's been a little bit since I covered the, the ins and outs, but I think there's a whole, there's a whole drama about getting your name off the ballot. How do you, you know, how do you get out of it? I think you can, you can die, you can move away, uh, you can be appointed or nominated for a judgeship and maybe something else. But I think there are only a couple of ways to get off the ballot and just saying you want to get off the ballot is not always one of them. And I always find it fascinating then if the person is not out there campaigning yeah. to still see how many votes they get in the election. Well, I mean, we've had elections. I'm not, I can't remember any recently here in New York, but there are certainly uh, numerous elections in the past where people have gotten elected after they've died. Uh, and uh, fortunately, we're not having that in this case. No, we are not doing that. We are not doing that. This is this is not uh, going to be an example of that. But it's just I, I don't know. Elections to me are super interesting and they have a lot of twists and turns. And uh, this is uh, this can be one of them. So now we are now up to our first uh, our first guest tonight. Okay, awesome. So uh, we are glad to welcome to the program here on Driving Forces Adonis Rodriguez. He's currently a member of the New York City Council. He represents District 10. That's Washington Heights, Inwood, and Marble Hill. Uh, he has uh, been a very active legislator. He's led and co-led 37 bills on the council, and he focuses on areas including the rights of women, workers, immigrants, and New Yorkers generally who are seeking social justice. Justice. And his uh, his efforts and his arrest during the Occupy Wall Street protests actually landed him in a photo spread for Time Magazine's 2011 Person of the Year Award. So, Councilman, welcome to Driving Forces. Glad to have you on the show. Great, thank you. So, maybe you could just start out. You know, tell our listeners a little bit uh, a little bit about you and and what you do and why you're running for advocate. Well, I feel that I represent the dream of many New Yorkers, especially poor New Yorkers and immigrants in particular. I was born and raised in the same island of Hispaniola from where the first non-Native American who was brought by the Dutch from the Caribbean arrived here in 1613, a free black man, Juan Rodriguez, who refused to continue going to Europe. And when the Europeans came back, uh, he was doing business with the Native American. That's why I was able to get former Mayor Bloomberg and others to co-sign uh, Sunny Street in Washington Heights. So for me, I believe that I am the person who represents who represent, uh, what, what we are. It, well, we are as a city, so I was born and raised in the Dominican Republic. I came here in 1983, but before arriving in New York City, I already had an organizing back there, fighting for student rights, fighting against the United States invasion in the Dominican Republic. And, and, and so when I got here in June 1983, I just continued the same fight that I still have been holding today fighting for social justice. So in the whole process, I was there when Leona Bumper was killed, 
I was at City College organizing the student takeovers in 89, 91, and through the movement persuading Mario Cuomo not to increase tuition and cut the budget. And, and then later on, after graduating from City College in 1993, I became a co-founder of Luperon High School and a teacher for 13 years, and then got elected in 2009 and being a legislator. Uh, in the past, I used to chair the Committee of Higher Education, and now I chair the Committee of Transportation. So, so I feel that I feel that uh, what I bring, uh, my 53 years old, is someone that has a unique 40 year with our staff fighting for social justice, a former teacher, currently the chairman of the Committee of Transportation, very independent and ready to fight a special interest on behalf of working class and middle class New Yorkers. And, and I remember meeting you, I and mean, we were speaking a decade ago uh, during uh, some of your advocacy efforts, uh, especially around the extension of term limits at that time. So I've seen you being out there for folks. How are you going to separate yourself during this campaign from the rest of the pack? What will, you know, why should voters look to support you versus the others? What makes you different? As I say, what makes me different is like, I can say one unique thing that I have is the consistency of 40 years without stop fighting for social justice, being involved in any fight that you can mention, from the movement organizing against the apartheid for the freedom of Nelson Mandela, being in Puerto Rico in 1994, organizing for the movement against the Navy being a Vieques and for the independence on Namibia, but also is someone that I can say what I can put in the table. I am the immigrant that we've been marching for. I still have my strong accents, probably going to be the citywide elected official with the strongest accents in the city of New York. As strong as my accent are my values, root in those values fighting for social justice. So what I also bring is among my colleagues, as far as I know, I am the only one. First, that I have been a teacher, so I can address how the DOE has failed to our students. I have been a co-founder of two schools. I've been a teacher for 13 years, and I also currently been chairing the Committee of Transportation, addressing a lot of things that is important for all of us. Uh, certainly the issue of transportation is a big one for New Yorkers. Uh, a lot of issues uh, going on even today, you know, constantly getting alerts on my phone about disruptions with the MTA, uh, sitting in tunnels, uh, not knowing what's going on. Uh, somebody just yesterday showed me a video that he made of a rat walking around on a platform like, you know, just hanging out like he was looking for his metro card or something. So in terms of in terms of what you'd like to do as public advocate about the transit situation, tell us a little bit about that. I believe that a, that a crisis of the sense of the MTA did not happen overnight. Uh, there's a lot of people responsible for taking the largest transportation system that has a value of one trillion dollar, one of the system that work 24 hours, uh, not many uh, do that, uh, but also someone that has been able to put uh, ideas on how to fix the transportation system. A few years ago, I presented my, my policy on transportation at Rooting Center. And in that idea, I 
call for a lot of things related to, first of all, to focus all the investment to the MTA on maintenance and repair, uh, maintenance and repair, and second, to 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 be sure that everyone do their part on increasing the investment to the MTA, but at the same time making the MTA responsible to control the cost. When the 125th uh, uh, trend is real happening, I call to declare in, in emergency the MTA months after the, the governor made that decision, official decision based on his authority that he had, and I also been calling to have to do a forensic audit to the MTA. I don't believe that the crisis of the MTA is only about the resources, which I believe we need to bring with congestion prices, with the millionaire taxes, and all the contribution that New York City makes to the MTA. But also, there's there's a lot of waste of money. In Latin America, we would call it corruption. Here in the United States, so sophisticated that we can approve why a project, why we take. It takes $25 million to install an elevator. Why today in New York City, New York, where we have 800,000 New Yorkers in disability, less than 25% of the train stations are accessible? And I don't think that is only a matter of lack of money. I believe it's also about management. I believe it's about transparency. So what I feel, again, that I bring as a, as a public advocate to the city of New York it's not only that I will be bring the voice of the working class. I used to be a taxi driver. I used to be. I used to work in a factory. I used to work be during the time that I was at City College. You know, driving my taxi. But I came here to wash dishes in 1983. So my belief is that at the, again at this age of 53, with my 40 year when I was stopped fighting for social justice getting results, getting positive outcome for working class and middle class, being involved in many fights, at some point they were not popular. So it is not only year that I was chosen as the protest of the year by the Time magazine. In 88, I was arrested because I was exercising my constitutional rights. And I was defended by, by Center for Constitutional Rights. And, that, and we won the case when the police used a sexy force against me. But I was not the only one. It was a year when black and Latino, we were stop and freeze larger in larger number. When crack was invented under the George Washington Bridge, and all Dominicans had the label as drug dealers. Not, not looking at the majority of Dominicans, that's as any working class, black, Latino, or Asian, or people coming from the former Soviet Union, they came here to work hard. So what I bring is my experience my value of fighting for social justice, plus the 10 years as a legislator, always working on behalf of the working class, and you can name it, it can be the basic day, it can be the living wage, it can be being arrested for a fighting for immigrants' rights. And I've been working with people from different social, economic, and race backgrounds. So this is another experience that I also bring as with the support with the voters, mm -hmm. I can be elected as the next public advocate. And one of the uh, one of the uh, powers or one of the uh, the purposes, I should say, of the public advocate's office is to be a counterbalance, a watchdog on the mayor. Can you think of any places where you already feel like you would have something to say, uh, you know, in objection to something the mayor is doing right now, something that you think he could be doing better or he should stop doing? 
I mean, just today, for example, we saw Look, the I, HUD I, secretary I, 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 talking about NYCHA. I mean, we're talking about federal involvement in our public housing system. That is not necessarily a sign, I would think, of of a you know perfect city management of a of a, a major part of our society. Look, I feel that a lot of people have drink and believe that, first of all, that people got to any place by themselves. And there's a lot of people that address how all the progress that we have made, you know, women's rights, the LGBTQ community, the immigrant community, like working class, middle class, as we already had resolved the issue of segregation of inequality in New York City. And when the mayor took office in the first budget, the budget director presented the data saying 44% of New Yorkers are living in poverty. Well, that number doesn't move so quick. And I know that the mayor has, you know, put together good tools, you know, from the UPK to after school programs. But still, when we look at the educational system, where we, in, in, where we spend around $23 billion and to educate 1.1 million students. And we cannot get the number right. We have the largest numbers of our students, especially living in poor neighborhoods, going to the school, and they get into middle school, and they are in the second and third grade level. As a former teacher of high school, it's a fact that I have experienced when I was a teaching and still is today. Most students going to underserved community in high school, in ninth grade, they are in sixth and fifth grade level. So when I've been touring many schools and I, you know, and here we go and celebrate that we offer AP classes. Well, but it breaks my heart when I see a classroom with five students taking AP classes. When we talk about that we should hope to prepare the students to take the specialized test, and we started preparing those students in, in the beginning of eighth grade, when we know what is working is, in the Asian community and other community to start preparing the student from third grade. So how we are able to go to sleep and thinking about, like, you know, public schools in our, in our city of New York, you know, there's a public school that is, you know, the public school where the grandfather went to that public school, where the father went to this public school, where the kid on the school, it's like a third generation of professionals. And, you know, I, I'm happy for anyone that has been able to be part of that generation, but we have the largest number of students in public school that we had a PTA that they cannot raise $100 versus mm-hmm. the other PTA that they have a million dollars in the bank account, half a million dollars in the bank account. So we need to equalize, and we need to be sure that every single school from the PTA, those who cannot raise the money, the city should include in the budget to be sure that there's enough resources to the PTAs for the student investment in the no, in the poor neighborhood, and we should use poverty and the formula to distribute resources in each and every school. So I applaud, you know, how we've been able to make some progress, but why we don't make mandatory to have after-school program in elementary school. As a public advocate, I will work very hard, and I will make my priority to be sure that every single child in the city of New York receives the same quality education. Because if I made it, someone that came here to wash dishes at the age of 18, 
if I marry someone that came here to be a taxi driver, it's working in a factory, and yes, because I got the support, being able to go through city college, being able to graduate, and now being a council member, and hopefully with the support of the board of being the next public advocate, then it means that the rest of the children in New York City, mm-hmm. they should be aiming to be president and CEO of hospital and schools. Okay. So, Councilman Idanis Rodriguez, thank you so much for joining Celeste Katz and me, Jeff Simmons, here on WBAI this afternoon. So we are now going to be uh, bringing on our next guest in just a moment, but we thought it would be smart to give you some important information because especially if you are a registered voter or if you're not, here's what's important. Voting, as we all know, is vital to our democracy. (laughs) Both Celeste and I are registered voters. So the city encourages everyone to get out and vote. And on February 26th, the polls are going to be open from 6 a.m. till 9 p.m. If you need to register to vote or update your existing registration, you can do so by mail or online by tomorrow. That's February 1st. So you got to do it by tomorrow or in person at the at a board of elections office by February 16th to register to vote or update your existing registration or find even your assigned polling site, check your registration status or get other information on voting, just go to voting.nyc or you can call. Celeste, what number do you call? Uh, you what, know that. For, for what? Oh, for... Uh, <laughs> 311. Oh, I'll go 311. Oh, I, thought, I thought you were putting me on the spot <laughs> for the um, for the uh, voter assistance, uh, the voter uh, voter advisory assistance. No, commission. no, no. 311. Well, I, got, I got all excited there. I've had wow. to call 311 a few times. Yes. You know, I don't call yes. 911. I call 311 Don't call 911. Don't call 911. Great. So this brings us to our next guest. Okay, awesome. So uh, this is me. Actually, well, I'm excited. I'm going to... I'm going to introduce yeah, We both our, wanted to do this. We did. Uh, you want to you fight for it? All right, everybody, we're going to put on some hold music while Jeff and I uh, knock each other out over who gets to introduce the next guest. But it's me. I win. Um, our next guest is actually the first person who ever served as public advocate in the city of New York. Um, and he is also the former city Department of Consumer Affairs commissioner, probably known best as Mark Green. And uh, he's also a talk show host. Uh, he's been a radio host, public interest lawyer, uh, and he is an author of a number of, a number of uh, uh, writings, uh, including Bright Infinite Future, A Generational Memoir of the Progressive Rise. And that's out from St. Martin's Press. So, Mr. Green, welcome to Driving Forces. Oh, thank you. Uh, I, I had a show on. Are you on BAI yeah. or somewhere else? Yeah, we are on BAI. <laughs> are we going to talk? Not, what, you thought we were on Air America or what? <laughs> no, uh, 20 years ago, I just had a weekly thing on BAI. Thank you for your kind words. I'd only had one thing, and then let's get into it. Okay. You just mentioned 311 on air? Yes. yes. I brought that to the city. That is. When I ran against Mike Bloomberg, I proposed 311 and what it would do. Mike wins, you may have noticed. And then he thanked me a couple months later because he was going to install 311. And so that's the way government should work win or lose, best ideas rise. Collaboration. So, yes. so Mark. Let's just go back in time. Tell us a little about how the Office of Public Advocate came to be and why. In the 1700s, stay calm. In the (laughs) 1700s in Sweden, a king didn't trust his uh, court, his ministers. So he chose a few people he knew well to watch over those who served him. They were ombudsmen. 
uh, cut to America, and uh, in 1831, uh, New York City had the predecessor office to public advocate. It was then called Board of Aldermen, mm-hmm. and it was uh, people who would watch over the city council and city agencies. Um, people who held that job, president of the Board of Aldermen, include Fiorello LaGuardia, Al Smith, probably the most famous governor in our history. And then in the 1970s, uh, I'm sorry, in the 1940s, the name was changed to president of the city council. And a man named Paul O'Dwyer, great guy, his brother was the mayor, he's a very famous Irish gun runner and Irish politician, became the president of the city council, and he enacted a law giving it more powers over city agencies to ferret out problems and help people with problems with the city bureaucracy. And then the name changed to Public Advocate in 1989 with a uh, charter commission. And so it's had a very long history, but a new moniker. And now it's something that's one of the three citywide offices, obviously. Because it's independently elected, it doesn't have to answer to the mayor. It has to represent all the people if there's a a problem or an idea the mayor doesn't have. Um, so it adds value to the city at something like a quarter, uh, you know, 25 cents per person. Very cost-effective. And uh, I think we've had five public advocates, I'm sorry, four public advocates, and we're going to elect the fifth one in three weeks plus. What's interesting is, you know, uh, you are, though, beholden to the administration when it comes to your budget, because I've seen the budget get cut significantly from the early years, if I'm correct. Uh, That's right. And and so I'm beholden. I mean, uh, you don't have to get clearance for what you say, propose, introduce as law, file a lawsuit. But the problem is if a, a public advocate does his or her job well, you could lose your job because an annoyed mayor retaliates. In fact, uh, Giuliani wanted to zero out our budget when I was the public advocate, and then Speaker Peter Malone said, are you crazy? It's in the charter. Come on, don't, be, don't get political about this. Uh, then uh, Mike Bloomberg was unhappy with some of the things public advocate Betsy Gottbaum was doing, slash the budget. And so when I was there, we sort of had a, in current dollars, maybe a $5 million budget and 40 staff. I think that's about what it is now. So it was cut and then it was replenished. Of course, the current mayor was the former public advocate, so he understands the process. By the way, one great reform, and it's not pie in the sky, the independent budget office in New York City doesn't have a set amount each year. It's a percentage of the entire city budget. So the city budget grows, you know, 100 million, whatever, then they grow. If it's cut, they cut. But they can't be 
discriminated against. And that gives them economic security. That should also be true of the public advocate office. Well, that's that's one of the things, actually, I wanted to ask you about. And by the way, if you're just joining us here on WBAI, we are speaking to Mark Green about the public advocate race. And he was the first uh, the first person to serve as public advocate here in New York City. So um, I was interested to ask you about this because you know, you've watched The Office evolve and change since since you held it. And uh, you've heard also the calls, I'm sure, for people who say, like, you know, look, this, this office doesn't really have much of a budget. It doesn't have statutory power to do a lot of things. You can introduce legislation, but you can't force people to pass it and so on. Some people say, get rid of it. What do we need it for? I mean, there was certainly, I'm sure you'll remember a few years ago, and I've talked about this on the air, uh, there was one year where the runoff for public advocate, I think, uh, cost something like $13 million, and the budget of the entire office was less than $3 million. So what do you say to people who say, like, why do we need this? Well, first of all, the people who say that are tiny and unserious. That is, every five years, somebody, you know, wants a quick headline, and says, oh, maybe we should save some money because it's small. Yeah, so is a tugboat. But, you know, it pushes the ships out to sea. You know, it's, uh, you can apply its power uh, carefully and influentially. I mean, we filed a lot of lawsuits that worked. that forced Giuliani to disclose uh, police misconduct files and got rid of cigarette vending machines and stopped domestic violence victims from being hurt in the workplace. Uh, there's a long list of things that we got done. And while you don't vote on a law, I got Peter Vallone to co-sponsor with me, since he was the speaker, a bill for the first time to increase, to have a public funding match of low donations. Then I got it four to one uh, of uh, under $1,000. As you may know, in December, Corey Johnson and Mayor uh, Mayor de Blasio got it changed to eight to one for two hundred and fifty dollars or less. So you know that's a, a good development in, in, in my my view, and, and it doesn't go anywhere because um, why wouldn't people want to spend a quarter a person, you know, to have somebody they can you know a hundred thousand people a year contact the office of public advocate for help. And we came up with, you know, every public advocate does their thing. Tish James, of course, was the most recent public advocate, filed lawsuits, uh, proposed free lunches. Um, and, and so two of the last four public advocates were elevated, not thrown aside, to become mayor and attorney general. That's a high-class problem. So you've been listening to Driving Forces with me, Jeff Simmons, and my co-host, Celeste Katz, on WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. We're talking to former New York City public advocate, Mark Green. So uh, as you mentioned, Giuliani, you know, twice in this conversation, my mind goes to what's been going on nationally. And uh, the city has been at odds uh, on a number of things with the Trump administration, including the so-called sanctuary city policies. Can the advocate in any way be involved with state or federal policy, or is it strictly meant to address local issues? No, it can be involved in anything it wants. Now, suppose it got involved in uh, selling submarine sandwiches. Uh, in uh, the north of the state, 
not good. <laughs> but <laughs> a public advocate can decide how to add value, what to work on where they could make a difference. And so, um, uh, for example, it's hard to make much of a difference at the MTA, because as we all know, the governor and the mayor fight about it all the time, and it's billions in capital spending. But if you can find an issue where you can say something that for political reasons or busyness the mayor can't get to, boy, you can make a big difference. So I, 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 uh, I try to get cigarette billboards eliminated in the city because uh, kids were seeing them in stadiums and on TV and starting a lifelong addiction. And yeah, I remember you talking about it. Joe Camel a lot, actually. I do remember this. Yes. Um, I was, you know, I saw these Joe Camel ads in slick magazines and thought they were killers. Uh, and there's no uh, First Amendment right to commercial speech. You're not allowed to lie in an ad, so you can take down the ad. And long story short, the city wouldn't do it. And I petitioned the Federal Trade Commission in Washington in uh, 1991, 1997. Joe Camel was gone because of the, our petition and the FTC. So sanctuary cities, that is an issue that uh, the mayor is very alert to because of the number of undocumented uh, people in the city and because of the viciousness of the uh, Trump administration. And so without me knowing more, sure, the public advocate could play a role, but it has to do what others aren't doing beyond answering taxpayer complaints. So what's so amazing to me is that we had nearly two dozen candidates running. It's down to 17 right now. I mean, we're in the middle middle of winter. You know, What do you expect as far as turnout? Do you, and or you know, are there going to be any standout candidates, or is it really going to be difficult a to get people to the polls and b to decide who to vote for? And when they do, is it going to be just based on the last name that they heard or the name they've heard most often? That's a good question. First, uh, everybody should know it's February twenty sixth. Second, it used to be that uh, fifty sixty percent of America turns out for president. Off year elections, thirty seven to forty percent turn out. 2018 was way more because of the effect of Trump. Uh, city elections, it's often maybe 30% for mayor, primaries 15 to 20%. This is a unicorn, an electoral unicorn. It's in the middle of the winter, no other races, special election, um, no runoff. Whoever gets the most votes wins, whether it's 10% or 90%. Yes, there are 17 candidates who think uh, lightning might strike. Only 10 of them qualify for the 8-to-1 match. If you didn't qualify, you're not serious. And of the 10, only two or three have any name recognition in the city, and only one will be endorsed by the New York Times, which is very credentialing. Now, uh, lay my cards on the table. I am very impressed by, and I have endorsed, Jamani Williams, council member for 10 years from Brooklyn. Who we, had on had la- who we had on last week. Oh, okay. He's had 50 bills enacted. Uh, he gets arrested frequently on civil disobedience and civil rights issues and has had, a, therefore, a huge impact on policing uh, in, in the city. And I would guess that 
every race, whether it's five people running or 17, comes down to, in terms of word of mouth, coverage, endorsements, uh, a handful. People can't evaluate 17 candidates. Um, and so I would guess uh, he is one of the leading candidates because he ran for lieutenant governor, in effect, against Andrew Cuomo, but the candidate um, was Kathy Hochul. And the incumbent lieutenant governor, with Andrew Cuomo, she won 53-47 over Germani, an astoundingly good performance. And so um, his combination of brains and guts and accomplishments, outspokenness and character, I so, think, so let me ask I think this. he'll do fine. If you were running in this election, what would be the first issue you would take on upon taking office? That's a good question that I'm not able to answer. By that I mean I have not been in city government in a long time. I've not been thinking like a public advocate for a long time. Uh, Germani says he's going to do a lot more on uh, housing. Others are emphasizing uh, education. You don't have to just do one thing. You can have an agenda of several items. Um... Uh, but in the era of Trump, you have to be alert, not just to waking up and stopping Trump. That's a national issue, but you can contribute. Um, like on sanctuary cities, you mentioned, maybe you could do a study on, of course, what, what people already know, I think and hope, uh, that uh, refugees, immigrants generally, new arrivals have a crime rate less than natural-born Americans. And so when Giuliani... I'm sorry, see what I've done? <laughs> when Trump goes on... Giuliani basically is a smart, smarter version of Trump. <laughs> and uh, We're, g- we're going to tweet that in a moment, by the way. Yeah, let me get that done. <laughs> which is not hard. But they're both blowhard, uh, mendacious people who BS in order to trick and hypnotize the low-educated base... That's a phrase that Trump uses, not me. Uh, so maybe there could be some kind of survey of sanctuary cities to add to the conversation, because that's both a local issue and, of course, a national uh, issue. So, Mark, we're going to have to wrap up in about a minute. And I know that Celeste had one very important question she wanted to ask uh-huh. before we wrapped up. <laughs> I do. Oh, I love it. Well, uh so do you ever miss it? Tell her I tell her yes, I miss her. Yes. <laughs> Not do you miss me? Do you miss running for stuff? Do you miss running for office? Do you miss being in public oh, life in the way good, you were? I mean, I spent I covered you in like I don't even know how many elections. I covered all of them. That was me. Yeah. The answer is that I really and look, I spent most of my life writing books and articles and radio and TV as a lawyer and a commentator. I spent a big chunk of it running for office, serving for eleven years in office. Because I thought that was the way to merge activism and ideas with public authority. I had subpoena power as consumer advocate, and I could uh, sue um, uh, in either job and propose law bills that became laws. That was a turn-on. It's unique to have public power. It's fine to have a, a radio show on BAI or... I had a national radio show with Ariana Huffington and Mary Madeline called Both Sides Now, nationally syndicated. That was fun. 
I loved running. I loved meeting people. I loved persuading people. Sometimes I persuaded a majority, and sometimes I didn't. Mark Green, we really appreciate appreciate you coming on the show, and we do want to have you back sometime. Uh, this has been a pleasure to reconnect with you. Well, for my usual fee, is reaching <laughs> you a very special audience. We, Celeste, so thank you all very C- much. Celeste and I can Vote give you... on the February 26th. Vote. C- Celeste and I can give you a portion of our salary today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I, we're putting that towards a good Thanks, cause. Everybody. Thank <laughs> you very again. much. Really good to have you Thanks. on the show. Bye. So as we've been talking about, yeah. you know, we're talking about those who are going to be on the ballot. But the other issue that's really important here is uh, is funding. You know, funding is what's going to be able to help a number of these candidates get their message out. It's not just about, you know, Mark talked about the name recognition that Jumani has had and a number of the other candidates, you know, who are in, especially those in elected office, right. will have uh, wider um, name recognition, but it also comes down to the amount of money you have raised and the amount of money that you're going to get in matching funds based on what you've raised well, from the number of people. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, obviously, look, it you know, as as we always say, the only poll that matters is on election day. But I mean, it really comes down to turnout. And I think that you know, I don't know, maybe in in certain like niche markets, uh, you know, maybe radio advertising say matters more. Television advertising, I don't know if it's in in a New York City market if it's really um, practical to rely on that but I think it's really going to come out to come down to who gets the troops out who gets people to remember when the election is to bother to go to their poll site and to you know vote for a certain person that's that's the real war here it's I don't think it's you know ultimately about but of course you know uh you know between being rich and being poor better to be rich I suppose right so with that we're going to go on to our final guest Yes, we are. And our next guest here that we are glad to welcome to the program is uh, Campaign Finance Board Director, Executive Director, I should say, Amy Loprest. And uh, she's going to explain to us about uh, the number of candidates who have reached certain thresholds uh, in the program. As you guys know, uh, the Campaign Finance Board is responsible for a lot of different things, for the administration of public financing, for uh, bringing people information about the elections, for uh, for sponsoring and coordinating debates that help us learn more about our candidates. So, uh, Amy, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Celeste. Uh, so maybe I don't, that was a little bit of a, a thumbnail sketch, but maybe you can do a better job. In fact, I'm sure you can do a better <laughs> job than me of explaining to the people what the CFB does. So, I mean, I think you hit, you know, the basic highlights of what we do. What we are, our aim is to improve the democratic experience in New York City. So we uh, aim to increase voter engagement and education, uh, to reduce the barriers uh, for running for office, to diminish the corrupting influence of big money, and to enhance the role of small contributors in the campaigns. And we do that through running the a small dollar matching funds program that you mentioned, and through our premier educational programs, the Voter Guide and the Debate Program, which we run. So uh, we mentioned earlier about the uh, the candidates who qualified, if I'm correct, uh, for the uh, uh, to participate in the debate, and also uh, the candidates who qualified for matching funds. Can you give us a little insight into the news this week that has developed? Um, okay, so we, uh, this week we announced that 10 candidates have met the qualifications to participate in the first debate, which will be on next Wednesday, February 6th, um, televised by New York One and live-streamed on their website and on their Facebook page, and simulcast on NYC Life, which is the city-owned flagship uh, 
uh, TV station. Um, so in order to qualify to be in that first debate, uh, the candidates had to have raised and spent $56,938 um, by the disclosure statement, which was due last Friday, January 25th. Um, and that number seems kind of an odd number, but yeah. it is it is um, 1.25% of the spending limit for uh, the Office of Public Advocates. So uh, that is where that number comes from. And 10 candidates have met that threshold to qualify to be in that first debate. So, you know, we're talking... Yeah. I mean, we're talking about different numbers. What's so interesting tonight, today, where we're talking about the ten and the seventeen. So, for those who don't, who aren't going to be part of that debate, there's still there's seven others that are still on the ballot. Um, what happens with them and their funding? Well, they I mean, so that's the qualifications for being in the debate. Um, there's also. You know, the public matching funds program. Today, the board issued payments to three candidates, um, totaling about a little under $2 million to those three candidates for who had qualified to receive public financing. There'll be more opportunities for them to receive public financing in the, you know, as we go towards the election. Um, the candidates, there is also a second debate. The second debate has a slightly higher qualification threshold. It is um, intended in the law to be the the debate among leading contenders. So the threshold, um, as I said, was 1.25% of the spending limit for the first debate. It's slightly higher. It's 3.75% of the spending limit for the second debate. But... All you, uh, your listeners can get information about all 17 candidates um, in the voter guide, which will be uh, online in about 10 days. You can get it at voting.nyc. Uh, there will be uh, profiles of this, uh, provided by the candidates and also video statements provided by the candidates. And in terms of, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think everybody in this uh, in this contest is participating in the public financing system. Nobody doing a, a self-funding. There is no one who's self-funding. I, um, I uh, think that there is one candidate who is not actually a participant, but I, I can't remember mm. if he's one of the people who remains on the ballot. Right, I'm sorry. right. No, because I just I'm always interested in the idea of, of. Um, how the campaign finance board works and having, you know, I've covered you guys for a long time and having heard people talk a lot about how it could be kind of a model for uh, other cities and, um, you know, other states, other places in the country. Um, there's still always sometimes uh, you know, people who are uh, outside the system. And I'm curious to, to know what you think about that, uh, people who decide to be outside the system, because you know, obviously, as you know, Mayor Bloomberg uh, used his own money three times to run successfully and is now thinking about running for president. Is, uh, you know, is there always going to be this aspect of uh, people with wealth being able to operate this way? Or do you think that one day there's going to be uh, a, a requirement almost, or it'll be so politically unpopular to do that, that it won't be feasible? Um, well, I mean, I think the one thing that the, you know, that the program does is really, it, you know, while there might be someone who is, has a, you know, has a lot of wealth who's able to self-fund their candidacy, the program is always available to 
uh, allow people who don't have the access to that wealth, either their own personal wealth or the access to big contributors, and you know people who will who can take advantage of the public matching funds program, fund their campaign through small dollar donations, and get the eight to one matching uh, rate, and really be one competitive races. Um, so I think that that is you know always you know the program's always going to have that important countering effect on people who, you know, might have, you know, their own wealth or access to wealth. And that is the whole purpose. It's basically to ensure that uh, candidates are listening to the voters. And, you know, over history, there have been people who have self-funded their campaigns, and some have been successful and some have not been successful. And so, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag. And But I think that the program stands the constant for allowing people who otherwise might not be able to run for office to have the resources to be able to run for office and get their message out. And and I, I understand that it may be <clears throat> potentially maybe a First Amendment issue, you know, being able to spend your own money uh, to advance your own uh, political interests or political cause. But at the same time, I happen to be sitting here with Jeff, who worked with uh, one Bill Thompson, who had a, an awful lot of money thrown at him in the uh, in the, the, she, the she, mayor's race. She loves to remind me about this. No, but but <laughs> in the end, Bloomberg won by what? It was less than five points. Not that I remember. Not that you remember, who's, because who's counting? So to your to your point, Amy, I'm just saying that you know sometimes a ton of money doesn't equal a ton of mandate, right? And I mean, yes, and I mean that's true. And I mean, there's also been, I mean, again, we are dealing with the constitutional. You know, the Supreme Court has. Uh, basically, as you pointed out, said that candidates, you know, are entitled to self-fund. Um, so, you know, there is that constitutional First Amendment issue. Uh, and again, I think that, you know, the message, getting your message out is really what the importance of the program. And that's really what um, what we, uh, the public money is intended to do, to allow candidates who don't have you know, aren't, you know, don't have the access to money like Michael Bloomberg to be able to run um, competitive campaigns. So the debate programs itself, uh, so from what I read in your releases, the first time uh, since CFB was established in 88 that the city's held a special election for citywide office. And when it comes to the actual debates, how, or how are these going to be structured? I'm sure there's members of the public who either want to watch this or want to see if they can attend. Uh, can you give us a little description of how these debates are going to unfold? Um, the first debate will not have a studio audience. Um, it will be televised. Um, the lead sponsor is New York One, so it's going to be televised on their channel. It'll be live streamed uh, on their website and on their Facebook page. And uh, for those will be, you know, in front of their paywall. And also. Uh, pursuant to a law that was passed by the city council last year, uh, it will be simulcast on the New York City's uh, uh, TV station, which is called NYC Life. And if you look on our website, you can see the channels, you know, depending on your carrier, which channel that NYC Life is. And then the next one, uh, I've got it's on, that's where it's a narrower field of candidates that will participate, or it's much more stringent as far as the uh, the rules, as far as how much what you've raised or spent to be able to get on that, um, on, is on February 20th. Yes, that is correct. And that will be at the Borough of Manhattan Community College. And there will be a studio audience for that debate, and we will be uh, announcing how those tickets will be distributed 
soon. And I'm sure we'll see Errol Lewis constantly turning around to say, everyone, please, no applauding, no screaming. Let us continue with the debate. We've got a lot of people to get through. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's important. I mean, you I know, know. Just, I mean, it's, it's nice to have the energy of the crowd, but you know, sometimes you want to make sure that it's not disruptive. <laughs> Especially with 10 people on the stage. It's just uh, the, the logistics of doing this. Because, you know, I've been actually um, uh, a debate questioner, a panelist on, on some of these debates. And uh, they go quick, even if you have only three or four people. 10 people is, is uh, uh, I, don't, I can't remember seeing anything like that. Actually. Yeah, the, the lightning round is going to take up a good amount of time because you've got to go through each person. <laughs> Amy, we've got about another minute left. Can you just remind people about the important uh, dates and about where they can get more information if they want to learn more about CFB and about the candidates uh, and any information about this election? Okay, well, remember, the election is on February 26th, so everyone should go out and vote. If you are not registered um, or you want to check to see if you're registered, you can look at voting.nyc. The online registration deadline is tomorrow, um, but you can register in person up at the Board of Elections until February 16th. Uh, Again, the first debate will be televised on February 6th. And if you want to learn more about the campaign, the candidates' finances, and about the campaign finance program, you can look at our website at nyccfb.info. Amy Loprest, Executive Director of the NYC Campaign Finance Board, thank you for joining Celeste and me here on Driving Forces. Okay, thank you. So uh, Driving Forces is coming to a close. And uh, Celeste and I are thank you, uh, thanking our guests once again. This is uh, We had candidate Adanis Rodriguez. We had Amy Lopress from CFB and former public advocate Mark Green, who was very good to talk with again. Yes, absolutely. And uh, we will be having even more discussion of the public advocates race. And I will be back with you next week on uh, Tuesday night for the uh, pregame coverage of the State of the Union address. So I hope you'll tune in. I think that'll be on Tuesday night from uh, 7 to 9 p.m. right here on WBAI. And I also want to remind our listeners to, again, you got you on Tuesday, on Wednesday to go to Max and Murphy because they're going to continue our coverage of the public advocates race. Uh, They've been having a number of candidates on. Uh, We will make sure we follow them and us on Facebook to see who they're going to have next. Uh, We have two potential candidates. I believe they're still on the ballot. They're still running who uh, have expressed interest in being on next week as well. If you have missed any part of this show or you want to uh, check it out later on. We will be uh, under archives on the WBAI.org website. Uh, We'll be up for a few months, so please check us out at WBAI.org. And for Celeste Katz and I, we'd like to thank you for tuning in to Driving Forces tonight. Have a great day.
coming up on WBAI at 6 o'clock. We have the WBAI Evening News for you with Paul DiRienzo, followed at 6.30 by Justice Matters with Bob Ganji. 7 o'clock, Joy Resistance with Fran Luck. Stay with us. WBAI is now a media sponsor of On Guard Arts, a pioneer of site-specific theater in New York. On Guard's new series called Uncommon Voices will present Truth and Reconciliation of Women, curated and written by artivist Tanya Pinkins. That's me. Five ten-minute plays, three musical numbers, an amazing evening of storytellings and moments in history you've never heard of and ones you want to see. Live at the Commons at 388 Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn on Monday, February 4th. 
The doors open at 6.30. Performance begins at 7.30. For tickets, go to onguardarts.org and wbai.org. See you on Monday. This is Bob Law inviting you to join us for the first in a series of community forums being broadcast live here on WBAI. It's Saturday morning, February 9th at 11 a.m. Broadcast live from Mist Harlem, 46 West 116th Street. Doors open at 10.30 a.m. Now, one of the issues to be addressed is a black political agenda needed or will the blue wave serve the interests of black Americans? And let's understand why black women's organizations are beginning to say, respect us. This is a really important community forum, and we're looking for you on Saturday morning, February 9th at 11 a.m. Join me and noted R&B singer and activist Allison Williams as my co-host, live from Mist, 46 West 116th Street in Harlem, and broadcast live right here on 99.5 WBAI. And this is WBAI New York. It's 6 o'clock.